0: I just read to you Exodus 26 and I'm not so much going to go through verse by verse. I read it because this evening we finished our study of the physical tabernacle and Exodus 26 is sort of a good overview and summary of what the tabernacle is. It describes the tabernacle in its entirety and we have been studying the tabernacle in some detail over the last few months and we've studied its furniture already, the bronze altar and the bronze basin in the outer court, which is the easternmost section, the door, remember, faces east, and so as you enter westward from the east, you come first to the bronze altar, and then there's the bronze basin just before a curtain, which goes into the holy place. And as you walk into the holy place, there would be a lampstand on your left side and the table of the bread of the presence on your right side. And then just before the veil that goes into the most holy place is the altar of incense. And then you go through another veil into the most holy place, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. And we've spent a sermon on each of these items, these pieces of furniture within the tabernacle. And now, uh, from next week, God willing, we'll be moving on to study the priests, their garments, their ordination, their work, etc. And then after that, God willing, the liturgical calendar of the Old Covenant people. So the daily, the monthly, and the annual ceremonies and feasts and so on and so forth that made up the timetable of the ancient Jews. But today we finish our study of the physical tabernacle and our study tonight will largely be a review of sorts as I'm going to re-present to you much of what we've already covered. And yet I hope that it will be helpful still to you in presenting to you enough new information to, to stimulate your thinking and further help you understand And I I hope that even where we're covering ground that we've already covered, I hope that it will help you further synthesize and pull together what we've learned over the last few months. And I hope that it will stir your affections for God. So tonight we're kind of summarizing our study of the physical tabernacle, which is why I read to you Exodus 26. So with all that in mind, let's, let's look tonight at the function and the beauty of the tabernacle in turn. Beginning with function. The tabernacle was a functional, practical structure. Obviously, we're going to read about walls. Right? Something to differentiate inside the tabernacle from outside the tabernacle. And if there are going to be curtains, they're not just going to float there. They're going to hang from hooks and clasps and so on and so forth. So you find all of the functional things that you would expect to find in any kind of structure. Obviously, there needs to be, if you're going to have curtains, there needs to be a curtain rod, or there needs to be at least a string or something to hang the curtains on. So we see lots and lots of just functional details. There's going to be frames to make sure that the, um, the bars and the cross beams and everything is strong enough, sturdy enough. That even when the wind blows that the tabernacle is not just going to fall over. So we read about a lot of function to the tabernacle. We read that it was a portable, a transportable structure which could be broken down into smaller parts and carried. You don't see it as often in Barbados, although I, I did see a good chunk of a house on a transport truck. Must have been one of those houses that came in from China that's already to some extent prefab. But you see a lot of that in North America. In fact, you can even see a whole house. Uh, a small house, obviously, but you can actually literally see a whole house on a transport truck going down the highway. With a sign that says Wide Load. And the, and the house takes up the whole lane. Maybe even encroaches a little bit into the next lane. And there's a... There's a uh, small pickup truck that goes in front with the flashing light, so the people know hey a wide load's coming through. and there's a whole house that's transported as one piece on a transport truck the tabernacle is not like it's not like someone just picks up the tabernacle and away the israelites go nor is it impossible to move it the way that it was impossible to move the later temple you just couldn't just pick up the temple and take it to another place The tabernacle was designed for a wandering people it was designed to be set up and torn down repeatedly and moved around the wilderness as the people of israel wandered and so it could be broken down into smaller parts and carried from the curtains and their supporting frames to the pieces of tabernacle furniture everything could be carried God either commanded that the pieces be able to be broken down to manageable size for one person, or for a few people, loading them maybe perhaps onto a cart, or small enough that they could carry it, a single person on foot, or that a few people could load it onto a cart, or that the pieces be fitted with components that would allow them to be carried by multiple people on foot. So for example, the bronze altar had rings that you would slide poles through. And so, once you put the poles through, then a number of men could put it up on their shoulder and could walk with it, and it was reasonable, of reasonable size to actually be transported and carried. And, and some of the other pieces of furniture likewise had, were fitted with rings so that they could be carried on poles. Apparently, a couple dozen Levites could set up or tear down the tabernacle in a matter of hours. So it wasn't wasn't like a week-long process to get the tabernacle set up. Whenever the Israelites would make camp, they could set up the tabernacle in a matter of hours. And even if they stayed there only a day or two, they could just pack it up when it was time to go. So there is function in this sense. Second, the various parts served a purpose and were well designed for that purpose. For example, what are the curtains for? between the outer court and the holy place between the holy place and the most holy place well at a basic level to divide one subsection of the tabernacle from another how are you even going to have sections without a boundary of some sort and of course they're not going to build these partitions of blockwork because then it wouldn't be transportable what was the bronze altar for to offer up sacrifices by fire and so the curtains were of thick enough material to hang properly and securely and to effectively differentiate one part of the tabernacle from another without continually blowing open. And at the same time, there were enough hooks and clasps to hold up the curtains so they didn't fall down. And the bronze altar was bronze on the outside so that the wood didn't burn up. But the wood inside the bronze at the core kept it light enough as opposed to if it was solid bronze so that it could actually be carried by the men on the poles. So function was was certainly a priority, you can see function in the design of the tabernacle. And also there was beauty. When we read in Exodus 26 about... The gold overlays of the items in the holy place and in the most holy place. And when we read about the gold and the bronze clasps for the curtains. And the blue loops for the curtains. And the blue, purple, and scarlet veil with cherubim skillfully woven into it. At the entrance to the most holy place. It's clear that the tabernacle was not designed with merely function in mind. But it was also designed to be beautiful. It's not as if God commanded, I know it won't be much to look at, but it will serve its purpose. So just build it the way I tell you. It's evident that God designed the tabernacle not just with function in mind, but also with beauty in mind. (laughs) God commanded that the tabernacle be beautiful, as well as function. I don't know if you've ever gone camping, again this might be more of a North American thing but for me I like, I like most backcountry camping where you go out several miles into the woods and there's nobody around and nobody to talk to nobody to talk to you It's just peace and quiet and the snakes and the bears and the <laughs> The, I, I, like, I like the isolation of that, and I like, I like getting away from the creaturely comforts and living a really primal existence for a few days. Um, one of the, I was hoping to get away this summer, it just didn't work out the way that I had hoped, but when I was in Canada for two months, initially I had planned the last week that I was in Canada to be away at one of the backcountry sites that I like to go to for a week. Uh, just try to get my head straight. Uh, but if many many of you have um you know at least to some extent spent some time outdoors in the great outdoors and you can imagine living for an extended period of time in the great outdoors you could imagine wandering through a wilderness you know there's no there's no running water there's no you know, couch that you could lay on and watch TV, etc., etc. The tabernacle would have been, by far, the most beautiful thing in the camp. So everything was, like, dusty and dirty and smelly. And then there was the tabernacle with gold and blue and purple and scarlet. If you found something like that, again, in Barbados, it's hard to like way out, right, like what am I going to say, St. Joseph, (laughs) St. Lucy, (laughs) right, but let's imagine in in North America where you can literally, there are places where you can literally go 100 miles and not run into someone, imagine if you're just walking for miles and miles and miles and there's nothing, and then there's this tent with blue and purple and scarlet and gold, you're going to be like, wow. I did not expect to see that here. And it's really going to, the, the contrast, like you're not in, you know, high society, in, uh, you know, some, some urban center where the um, high class socialized live and, you know, you're not, you're not like going out to look at some structure in the backyard of a billionaire, like you're in the wilderness. And then there, here's the structure of gold and, and purple and scarlet and blue. Like, this would be by far the most beautiful thing in the camp. So there's function and there's beauty. Let me just make that simple point. Now here's a question. Was there specific typology or specific symbolism associated with each and every item of the tabernacle? Do each of the clasps and hooks and rings that held up the curtains represent something? Or do the total number of them represent something? Are we to add up 50 clasps on the one side and 50 clasps on the other? Well, that makes 100. And what does 100 signify biblically? Like, are we to do that? You understand? For example, John Gill says, and I often quote John Gill favorably, but not tonight. John Gill says that the fact that the curtains, um, pardon me, John Gill says that the curtains made of goat's hair represented, quote, the outward appearance of Christ in human nature, who, attended with all human infirmities except sin, was in the form of a servant in great meanness and poverty covered with reproach, and had in the greatest contempt, and especially at the time of his sufferings and death. Is this the kind of symbolism that we should be searching for in every detail? You know, why was this made of goat's hair? Well, never mind that a lot of tents in those days across cultures were made of goat's hair. It's a functional material, and obviously you gotta make something. You can't have an ethereal curtain, right? Or John Gill says that the covering of the tabernacle, i.e. its roof, symbolizes, quote, being clothed with Christ's righteousness. Not sure about that. Or here's, here's a beauty. The boards strengthening the sides of the tabernacle, which we read about in, um, at the end here in... Uh, Exodus 26 verse 37 And you shall make for the screen Five pillars of acacia And overlay them with gold Well apparently these Pillars of acacia represent Those who are pillars In the house of God Both ministers and private members In other words you're solid And you're sturdy and faithful Church members In other words these boards Represent Jonathan And Tevin And Manny, and so forth, and that when we read Exodus 26, we're like, yeah, boy. (laughs) Right? I think not. Though there may be some who would disagree with me, and and sorry to disappoint you, brother. (laughs) From my perspective, the reason that we attach symbolism to some items in the tabernacle, and yet not others, is because we clearly have warrant to do so with one category, and, and yet not with another, and and we're failing to account for the fact that there obviously just does need to be form and function, right? And so um, we see clearly taught in the rest of Scripture, for example, the symbolism of incense as we studied last week. The incense is is continually symbolic of prayer throughout Scripture. We see clearly taught in the rest of Scripture the symbolism of burnt offerings representing Christ Jesus being sacrificed and offered up for us. We see clearly the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and the tablets on the inside representing God's law and God's gospel. And appearing again in apocalyptic literature and Revelation at the end of the Bible. And so from my perspective, we should attach symbolic significance to the pieces of furniture associated with the ceremonies of the tabernacle. Since we are explicitly told that the ceremonies of the tabernacle prefigure Christ and His Word. But we should not attach specific symbolic significance to each and every piece of the tabernacle, in my opinion. That being said, I do believe that we can attach a general symbolism to the whole tabernacle. We've already seen in our study over the last number of months That the earthly physical tabernacle represents the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. So that speaks of the thing as a whole. And we already know that the things in the tabernacle are copies of the true things. According to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. 24 So it stands to reason that there is function and beauty as there was function and beauty in the earthly tabernacle there is function and beauty to the realities symbolized by the earthly tabernacle Consider the function and beauty of the God man Christ Jesus for example, signified by the impassable bronze altar, which could not suffer or be destroyed, and yet at the same time is one symbolic, forms one symbolic picture together with the gift that is consumed on it. As we saw when we studied the bronze altar, this represents to us the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Consider the function and the beauty of that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, in which we can be washed, symbolized by the bronze basin. Consider the function and beauty of God's dwelling place, which has room enough for all of us, prepared by Christ, that where He is there we may be also. Where we will eat and drink with God in a place where God Himself is the light. All of this is symbolized by the table and the lampstand in the holy place. Consider the function and beauty of prayer that God bids us come to Him and cast our cares upon Him and pray to Him, and that He will raise His mighty right arm on our behalf in answer. To our prayers, all of which is signified by the incense ascending to God from the altar of incense just outside the most holy place. Consider the function and the beauty of the law of God and the mercy of God working in conjunction in the salvation of sinners. God justifies not by setting aside the law, but by satisfying its demands on our behalf. In Christ Jesus here's the big idea for tonight God's salvation of us accomplished by Christ in the heavenly tabernacle we're told in Hebrews and God's invitation of us to come in westward past the cherubim back into his full presence after having been expelled eastward from the Garden of Eden in the beginning Is not just functional, but is also beautiful. Everything that was represented by the tabernacle is not just functional, but is also beautiful. I want you to take a little field trip with me in your mind's eye using your sanctified imagination as we explore the physical tabernacle together. The Israelites knew that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that it was very good. But God said to Adam and Eve of a certain tree you shall not eat. Right? But Adam and Eve ate. And it says that God cast them out of the garden eastward. And He placed at the entrance the garden. Cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way so that Adam and Eve couldn't come back in. So if they were expelled eastward, then which direction would they have had to travel to come back into the garden of Eden? Westward. Westward, Past the cherubim. Right? But they couldn't get past the cherubim back into the presence of God. So then God sets up this system of worship among his people, where he says, hey, build this big rectangular tent, and the door of it needs to face east. So the Israelites have to travel west to go worship God, right? And God brings to fulfillment for the Israelites the promise that he had made to Abraham so many years earlier, that I will dwell with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? And God's special presence lives in the tabernacle. And specifically, as we saw months ago, if we were to say specifically where the tabernacle is, is God's presence, we would say above the mercy seat, which was on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the westernmost section of the tabernacle, the most holy place. And so the Israelites would have had to go westward into the tabernacle. And they see in there the substitution of animals for them over and over and over and over and over over again on the bronze altar. And they understand then the concept that they need a substitute, but as the author of Hebrews says, by the very fact that these things were offered over and over and over again, we can deduce that they actually were never effective. The illustration I gave you was if the plumber comes and fixes your sink a hundred times, the question is, did he really fix it the first 99 times? Was it actually a fix? Was it actually effective? If it was, he wouldn't have had to come and do it again. In the same kind of way, these sacrifices, by the very fact that they were offered over and over and over and over again for sin, showed that they actually never took away sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But we didn't actually have to wait for Hebrews to tell us that. We could infer that by the very fact that they happened over and over again. And so, so these people would be able to realize, you, if you walked in through the east door and you saw this bronze altar and you watched what happened there day after day after day, you could go, okay, God wants to take away our sin. He wants to atone for our sin. He wants to dwell among us, but He requires that our sin be atoned for if He's going to dwell among us. And yet these animal sacrifices can't atone for our sins and so there must these must be shadows and symbols of something else and something further which is coming down the line and then you would see the bronze basin where the priests would wash as they come in and out and you would you would see that though they have been Ordained, They're nevertheless not perfectly and perpetually cleansed, but there's this regular washing which is needed over and over. And you would think, well, these are the holiest guys among us. And if even the holiest guys among us need to wash over and over again, then I suppose I need to wash over and over again. And you would hear about, and perhaps maybe see in passing, as the tabernacle was dismantled and put back together again, you would, you might perhaps catch a glimpse of the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstand, and you would hear that the priests get to go and eat there with God, and that there is this light which never goes out and never stops burning, and you would think, man, what a privilege it would be to eat with God around his table. And you would hear about the most holy place into which only the high priest could go and he but once a year. And you would think, man, it would be really something to meet with God, to be in God's very presence. And again I said about the altar of incense. And the altar of incense just outside the most holy place where the incense would be burned twice a day, representing our, our prayers to God. But you would recognize that actually fits with what I just said that there's still this barrier, there's this curtain which keeps you, the average Israelite, from going all the way westward back into God's presence. And so you would see man, God is glorious, God is gracious, God is holy. We are dirty, we need to wash, we are sinful, we need our sins atoned for, and so on and so forth. And all of these things would be taught to you by the symbolism of the tabernacle. And you would think, man, what a beautiful thing the tabernacle is, where God teaches us that He's willing to wash us, that He's willing to atone for our sins. And that He's willing to make camp with us. To dwell with us. To be among us. To take us as His people. And to let us call Him our God. This is functional and this is beautiful. But you would realize and you would anticipate. These are pictures and shadows. Because again, if the plumber fixes it 99 times, it means he didn't fix it. Right? So you would realize This is not ultimate. This is just pictures. This is object lessons of something. God is teaching us about something beyond these ceremonies themselves here. What is he teaching us about? And you would remember that God said to Adam, um, sorry, pardon me, God said to the serpent in the beginning that a descendant of Eve would crush his head. And you would remember that God said to Abraham many years previous that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And you would remember that Moses said that there was a prophet coming like him but greater. And you would realize that, look, one day God is going to bring a full and final rescue. One day God is going to bring to fulfillment all of these pictures. And then you would live your life in the shadow of the, the tabernacle and its ceremonies, understanding enough to understand that it's by grace, by God's own provision of atonement, by God's own provision of washing, that we could be His people and that He could be our God. But you realize there has to be something coming. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus says that He is the Lamb of God. And Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And Jesus says, all who are thirsty, come and drink. Jesus says, all who are hungry, come and eat. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, which is the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, from top to bottom. So that our prayers no longer have to be offered from just outside God's presence. Still east of God's presence. But we now go through, remember that was the curtain with the cherubim on it. We now go through westward, past the cherubim. Back into the very presence of God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we offer up our prayers there. And we have the access now of high priests. Wow. Beautiful. Functional and beautiful. Jesus does what needs to be done. He's effective. He's functional. But it's also so beautiful that this story of getting westward again, past the cherubim, back into God's very presence, that God would be our God and that we would be His people and that He would dwell among us, atoning for our sin, washing us, Inviting us to eat and to drink with him and to be our light. all of this is brought to fulfillment in and through Christ Jesus. This is both functional and beautiful. So, do we attach specific symbolism to each and every item in the tabernacle? I don't think so. I don't believe so. I believe we attach symbolism to what we have warrant to attach symbolism to which is which is the ceremonies which prefigure Christ and his work and then also the objects associated with them and the items in the tabernacle like the curtain with the cherubim on it for which we have a clear biblical warrant to make an inference of symbolism but do we do we start to talk about how the Pieces of acacia wood symbolize, you know, the strong and sturdy members of the church, and you know how the roof of the tabernacle symbolizes how we're covered with Christ's righteousness. Sorry, John Gill, but I don't think so. But we nevertheless we look and we see the tabernacle as a whole, and we see function, and we see beauty, and we see it as the symbol of God's presence and the provision that He's made to make His camp with us, that He would be with us and be our God, and that we would be His people. And so on and so forth. We see, we see. Okay, this this whole thing is a picture of what God has done in Christ for us, in order to dwell with us, that we might be His people, and that He might be our God. And it helps us see that the work of Christ is not only functional but beautiful. But it also helps us see that our Final dwelling place is also laden with beauty. For as we saw a couple of months ago when we studied the most holy place and the holy place, and we talked about the rending of the curtain again, then a couple of months ago, we saw that in Revelation, the place where we will dwell with God is presented to us as a cube. It's an enormous cube, the dimension, like almost of North America but it's presented to us as a cube and the only place that we see a cube elsewhere in Scripture is the most holy place and so what we need to understand is that when all is said and done what God is doing is bringing us westward again into the most holy place. Not just so that we can go in there and enter temporarily and offer up our prayers to God and so on and so forth and then go back to where we live. But God is actually bringing us to dwell with him in the most holy place, so to speak. The symbolism of seeing that in Revelation is that we're expelled in Genesis east of Eden but by the time revelation comes around with all that's transpired in biblical history we've come all the way westward again, back into God's full presence which is foreshadowed and signified by the most holy place and there we see the reality of the bronze basin and the bronze altar and the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstand and the altar of incense And the Ark of the Covenant, God's law, God's gospel, perfect communion with God in prayer, uh, eating and drinking in His presence, He Himself being our light, being washed, being atoned for, and all of this in and through Christ Jesus. You see, there is... It's not just beauty that we can sort of understand and wrap our heads around doctrine about something that Christ did somewhere... But it's like we're actually going to live there. That we're going to dwell with Christ in God's very presence. Which is symbolized and foreshadowed to us in the pages of Scripture by the most holy place. And everything that is needful for us will be there. There will be function. But it will also be beautiful. It will also be glorious. Glory. Glory. Glory dwell in Emmanuel's life.